Welcome everybody. Today is August 22nd, 2021. Welcome to our Relapse Where Do I Go From Here workshop, hosted by the wonderful Rita Q and Gail N in the UK. So a little bit about what's going to happen today. First of all, here's our preamble. The circle reminds us that the study of the big book never ends. People who have relapsed have stopped taking actions of unity, service and recovery. These actions are for ourselves and for others in a never ending series of action after action after action. When the food finally goes in our mouths, we say, oh my God, that's the start of my relapse. No way. The start of the relapse is when we stop taking those vital actions. Okay, so now I would like to introduce our first speaker today, Gail N. I met Gail via Zoom last year. And over to you, Gail, very excited to hear you. Hi everyone, my name's Gail and I'm a compulsive overeater. And I thought we'd start with the set aside prayer. So I'm gonna say it slowly. So if you wanna follow when I finish speaking, you can do. And we're saying this to the higher power of our understanding or indeed lack of understanding. So please set aside everything I think I know about you. Everything I think I know about myself. Everything I think I know about others. And everything I think I know about my own recovery. To open my mind and my heart to a new experience with you. A new experience in myself. A new experience in my fellows and a much needed new experience in my own recovery. Okay, hi everybody, my name is Rita Cuey. I'm a recovering possible reader. So um, I don't know if you wanna put the first slide up, an introduction to relapse, which is the definition of relapse. This comes from the Latin meaning re, which is back, and labi to slip. So that is to deteriorate after a period of improvement to return to a less active or worse state. So obviously the improvement has been there. So let's bear that in mind. If we go on to the next slide, page 120 of the big book, we hear about relapse here. And it says, though it is infinitely better that he has had no relapse at all, as has been true with many of our men, this is not the story for Gail and I. And it goes on to say then, it is by no means a bad thing in some cases. Your husband will see at once that he must redouble his spiritual activities if he expects to survive. This is our story. And now we're both going to explain how we did that. So I'm going to hand it over to Gail to share her story. And, um, and then we will talk about some big book warnings as well. Gail, over to you. So I'm really delighted to be here this morning, afternoon, evening, whatever it is for you to discuss the topic of relapse. Um, just by way of a very quick introduction, I first came to OA in 2008 after a 20 plus year battle with food. I had five years incredible recovery, followed by seven years of relapse. And I'm now in my 17th month of being recovered. So my seven year relapse was genuinely the worst time of my entire life. I really, really thought this disease was gonna kill me. It was so terrifying to think that I was done. I'd come back to OA, I'd surrender. And then a few weeks or months later, I'd be back off in the food again. 
The shame was all consuming. I felt that all I could see were people who got the solution and I was the constant failure who couldn't get it. And in my first week back in March of last year, this time, I went to a workshop on relapse and three women shared about their stories coming back from relapse with so much grace, acceptance and humility. I just realized that I could do what they had done and I could get recovered again. And those three women probably saved my life. And that's why I feel so passionate about talking about relapse because it's such a lonely place when you were there. So my story is going to focus on my journey into relapse and Rita's story is gonna focus on how she came out of relapse. And I hope my reflections will help somebody today because the promises tell me that no matter how far down the scale I have gone, I will see how my experience can help others. So Susan is gonna share some, some pictures and they basically tell my story. So if you look at the pictures, Thank you, Susan. So here's me as a child and in my early 20s at a healthy body weight. And then we move on to me being in my active disease in my 40s. So this is actually me in Paris celebrating my 40th birthday. And I was utterly, utterly miserable. I then entered a phase in my life of recovery. And the smile probably says it all. This is me in my recovery. And then in my relapse. So pictures between 2013 and 2020 show me in my relapse. And the next picture shows me at Christmas 2020. And then finally, what I look like now. And it absolutely is not about what I look like. Those pictures keep me humble because they are a reminder of where self-reliance takes me. They also demonstrate that I've got a higher power in my life because when I am living Gail's life, then I just cannot keep out of the food. And they also confirm that I have a disease because if I didn't have a disease, I wouldn't have done that to myself. So I'm just gonna describe what my life is like if I'm not in recovery. So this talks about my life pre-OA and then also my life in relapse. So if I'm awake, I am either eating or I am being tortured by food thoughts. I just cannot stop binging. My top weight was 345 pounds and I absolutely know that this disease had not finished with me because I could and would eat myself to death. I tried absolutely everything with the exception of surgery and the insanity in relapse was that I went back to all of those things and I am not just talking about joining the odd paid slimming club. I must have joined in excess of 60 times in relapse, each time thinking this was gonna be the solution and really believing that. And then just the chip, chip, chip away at my self-esteem when it didn't work. And I swore off so many times, I did a lot of my binging at night and I would go to bed feeling so physically horrendous. And I would swear that I was not gonna do that again. And I, I could have probably passed a lie detector test because I meant it. And I would get up in the morning with the same resolve. And yet by the time I'd walked into the kitchen, I'd be eating a family sized bar of chocolate for breakfast. I was incredibly physically incapacitated towards the end of my relapse, but even that wasn't enough to stop me. And I was utterly, utterly miserable. I was self-obsessed and I was consumed with me. 
and I was full of fear, resentment, jealousy, anger, shame and self-loathing. The list goes on. And if I'm not in recovery, I know that I have lost the power of choice when it comes to food. My disease decides when I binge and my disease decides when that's over. I just have no control around that because I eat against my will. And I have this really powerful, persuading, seductive voice in my head. And in my life, I was capable in many, many areas. You know, I got to the top of my profession. Um, you know, I've been married to a great guy for 34 years. I've got two fabulous children. But you know what? A piece of cake has the power to bring me to my knees. And that is my truth. And I was utterly terrified by the power that food had over me. And during relapse, knowing that OA was the only solution because I had had recovery and not being able to connect was absolutely soul destroying. So my journey into relapse was extremely subtle. I couldn't see it. And that's why I need a sponsor and I need to be surrounded by people who will tell me like it is. On page 48 in the big book, it tells us that sometimes acceptance and surrender is a tedious process. And my seven years of relapse was certainly a tedious process. And I had had five years of really good recovery. I was emotionally and spiritually well. I'd been physically transformed. I was living in steps 10 and 11. So I wasn't blocked from my higher power. And I was being of service. I was sponsoring uh, and I was doing service at a local and national level. And then a number of things started to happen, which I can only see in a rear view mirror because this disease is so subtle and powerful. And it's almost like being near the edge of a cliff in really thick fog. I couldn't see that I was about to fall off the edge of the cliff and boy, did I do that spectacularly. And there's a wonderful paragraph in the big book on page 450, which has a, so much wisdom and learning in for me. And it says, then I realized that I had to separate my sobriety, my abstinence, my recovery from everything else that was going on in my life. No matter what happened or didn't happen, I couldn't drink, I couldn't eat certain foods. In fact, none of these things that I was going through had anything to do with my sobriety, my abstinence, my recovery. The tides of life flow endlessly for better or worse, both good and bad. And I cannot allow my sobriety, my abstinence and recovery to become dependent on these ups and downs of living. Sobriety, abstinence and recovery must live a life of its own. And there's a stark warning in there that I failed to heed. So there's a number of reflections that I'd like to share with you about what happened to me in relapse. And the first thing is that I lost my humility. You know, my life was so, so good. I thought it was a gale job and not a God job. And binging became a really distant memory for me, as did morbid obesity. And I began to grow apart from a higher power and that spelled absolute disaster because I have a physical allergy to certain foods. I'd put these foods down for five years, therefore I hadn't triggered the physical allergy, but I also have a mental obsession that insists I eat those foods and keeping close to my higher power keeps this mental obsession at bay. But if I lose the connection with my higher power, I have no way of resisting the food thoughts. I'm powerless and therefore I will always succumb. And the dictionary definition of succumb is to give way to a superior force. And that is absolutely what it feels like when I am in the food. 
and I have a physical allergy to kiwi fruit so I never ever eat kiwi fruit because I have some horrendous consequences of that but the difference with the kiwi fruit is I don't have a mental obsession that tells me I have to eat kiwi fruit so I need to keep my step one experience really close and remember what it's like to be in the food and powerless and have an unmanageable life and as many people in this program say the size of my body bears no resemblance to the size of my disease. The second thing that happened to me was that I stopped seeking growing my relationship with my higher power. So like Jim's story on page 35 that tells us he failed to enlarge his spiritual life. And on the top of page 63, we're told that our higher powers will provide what we need if we keep close to our higher powers and perform our higher powers work well. That is basically steps 10, 11 and 12. And I stopped living in steps 10, 11 and 12 because I put work in front of my recovery and it became all consuming and it left little time for recovery. I went to less meetings, I sponsored less, I spent less time seeking that relationship with my higher power. And as a consequence, Gail's world grew bigger and God's world grew smaller. The third thing is that I didn't have strong sponsorship and I know today that I need that accountability and that objectivity of working with a really, really strong sponsor. It's vital to my recovery, absolutely vital. For me, and this is just me, I need to commit my food daily. I need to share my evening review daily. I need to be honest about what I'm thinking, feeling and doing. And I need someone to look at what's going on in my life and hold a mirror up because the conscious mind that created the problem cannot solve the problem. And I need the objectivity of a sponsor and other people around me. So what happened to me without strong sponsorship? Well, I thought I could eat banana bread for breakfast when I was on holiday in New York. My current sponsor would absolutely have called me out on that. And you know what? I ate the banana bread a couple of times for breakfast and nothing happened. Nothing happened for six months. Nothing happened until it happened and I took that first compulsive bite because when I came back from New York I was back on my usual food plan so I thought I was okay I thought I'd got away with it I think I can go for days without sharing my fears resentment dishonesty and selfishness therefore I block my higher power again my current sponsor would call me out on that and I forget that step 12 gives me insurance against relapse and actually I need to be really inconvenienced by service you know, I can't go off and read that novel and finish that novel that I want to because I'm doing step 12 work with somebody. I need to be inconvenienced. The last thing, I forgot who I was and who am my tribe. So I have a blip in my brain, which means that the bit of my brain that's wired to keep me safe from walking out in front of a moving car doesn't work when it comes to food. And I have the capacity and the ability to eat myself to death and the horrendous physical consequences that many of you will have experienced of my overeating are not enough for me to stop. And on page 39 in the big book, it talks about he made up his mind to quit drinking altogether. It never occurred to him that perhaps he could not do so. The disease is in charge, not me. And I absolutely need to remember that. So just to kind of close um, my story, um, I found my truth in relapse. Relapse taught me a lot and I understand this disease 
and its solution so much more than I did. So I know that I either need an awful lot of food to live my life or I need a lot of recovery and God to live my life. I also know that I only have this moment because when I woke up on Christmas day of 2013, I never dreamt that I would be going to bed in relapse. My five year recovery just literally evaporated in an instant when I put that first compulsive spoonful in my mouth. I was sucked back into this disease like quicksand. It wasn't subtle, it wasn't slow. Once I took that first compulsive bite, I was right back into the binging behavior. Uh, and I stayed there for seven long, painful years. I know today that only a spiritual solution will work. My problem is that I have a spiritual malady. I have a disordered condition. It is not the food. And working the steps restore me to order and sanity. Because when I'm in the food, I'm restless, irritable and discontent. And I'm the person that's described on page 52 in the big book. Without the food, that gets worse. And my spiritual sickness can only be healed with these steps. You know, if I fall and break my leg, it's not going to get better on its own. I need some intervention and the steps are my intervention. I also know that I enter into a contract with my higher power in step three. And I'm told in the big book that my higher power will give me this wonderful life of recovery as long as I deliver my part of the contract. And my part of the contract is to keep close to my higher power to keep that inner channel, channel clear. And I do that through steps four to nine and then living in 10 and 11. And the second part of the contract is that I work with others. And I don't know how that works. I just know that in order to keep my own recovery, I have to give away what I have been given. And the longer I'm in recovery, the harder I need to work my program. And just never lose hope. You know, I felt so, so without hope for so many years in this program. But on page 50, it tells us that this power, that higher power that these steps help me access, has in each case accomplished the miraculous, the humanly impossible. And if that's happened to me, it can happen to you. So today, I know in my heart that if I'm not trusting and relying on God, I'm trusting and relying on food. Therefore, my choice boils down to a faith in a higher power or a slow, painful death. And that is my truth. My name is Gail. I'm a compulsive overeater and my tribe is OA and this is where I belong. Thank you. Thank you, Gail, so much. And I did want to mention that there will be time for Q&A afterwards. OK, Rita, you have rejoined us. Over to you. <laughs> oh, we're staying with me for a little bit longer. Um, we're going to do the next uh, the next section in, in two halves. So, um, so you've heard my personal story. So what does the big book tell us about relapse? There is so much wisdom in the big book about relapse. I think it's really helpful um, that Rita and I go through and just pick some points out. This by no means covers every mention of relapse in the big book. We would still be here in five hours time if we did. But we're just gonna pull out some real pertinent points in the big book that tell us about relapse. So before we even get into the main body of the big book, uh, we're, we're told um, some, some real start warnings about relapse. So on page XVI, we're told that he suddenly realized that in order to save himself, he must carry his message to another alcoholic. 
So this is talking about step 12, right at the very, very beginning of the book. And that's really strong language, isn't it? You know, he realized in order to save himself, he must, it doesn't say you might want to consider carrying his message to another alcoholic. It says that we must in order to save myself. So to help me, I have to help you. And then secondly, strenuous work, one alcoholic with another was vital to permanent recovery. So me working with another compulsive overeater ensures my permanent recovery. Again, really strong words there. And without doubt, step 12 brings me closer to my higher power. I do, I do not know what happens when I sit down with another compulsive overeater and go through the big book, but it's absolutely magical. And I feel myself close to my higher power when I do that. And then on XIX, it says that AAs, so compulsive overeaters, had to hang together or die separately. We had to unify our fellowship or pass off the scene. And again, that's really strong language. So we have to stick together or we die alone. And we have to unify our fellowship, this wonderful fellowship that we find when we're, we're in these rooms or pass off the scene. This is a we program but my ego will tell me that I'm different. I don't belong with you. I'm better than you. I'm worse than you. So that's a really lovely reminder about the, the strength of this fellowship. On page 13, we're told that belief in the power of God, plus enough willingness, honesty, and humility to establish and maintain the new order of things were the essential requirements. So again, really strong language, essential. And yes, willingness is important, but I have to say, I have seen this disease kill people while they wait for willingness. And sometimes we just need to act. I sometimes think if I'd have waited for willingness, I might not have been sat here in front of you today. So sometimes we just need to take action. And on page 15, another beautiful reference to step 12, but I soon found that when all other measures failed, work with another alcoholic, work with another compulsive overeater would save the day. And that tells me that that is the solution to anything. So when all other measures fail. So if I'm having food thoughts or if I'm self-obsessed or I've got a resentment that I can't get rid of, whatever, whatever it might be, if I've just got some general you know, discontent, irritability, work with another person, it will make me feel better. And that is absolutely my experience. And then again, we're reminded on 20 that our very lives as ex-problem drinkers depend upon the constant thought of others and how we may help meet their needs. So the constant thought of others, that means that I lose the obsession with myself because left to my own devices, that is all I think about. So I need to constantly be thinking of how I can help others. And I interpret that both inside and outside of the programme. So yes, my primary purpose is to help fellow compulsive overeaters, but I also try and be helpful in every area of my life. I very often have to make lots of amends to my husband, I have to say, but I am a work in progress. And then on page 32, then he fell victim to a belief which practically every alcoholic has, every compulsive overeater has, that his long period of sobriety and self-discipline had qualified him to drink like other men or qualified me to eat like other people. I need to know my DNA. I need to know that I'm a compulsive overeater 
and I can never eat certain foods without disaster or indulge in certain food behaviors without disaster. And then one of my favorites on page 58, rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. So this is a recipe that works. It's not about tweaking that recipe, you know, if I were ever making a pair of curtains, it's highly unlikely because I can't even sew. But if I ever were, I would not mess about with the measurements because I'd end up with a pair of odd curtains. This is a recipe that works. And it says thoroughly followed our path. It doesn't say follow the path 50% of the time. And I once heard a, an AA speaker say that uh, a newcomer was reading this in a meeting and instead of saying, really, have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path? The newcomer said, really, have we seen a person thoroughly follow our path? And then finally for me in this section, page 63, which I referred to in my story, he provided, referring to our higher power, he, she, it, whatever your, your concept of the higher power, what we needed if we kept close to him, her, it, and performed his, her, it's work well. And again, that just reinforces that contract I enter into in step three with my higher power. I get an abundant life in recovery if I keep close to my higher power and perform my higher powers work well and work with others. And now I'm gonna hand over to Rita. Hiya. So we'll move on to the next slide if we can. The big book warnings again about relapse. So the first one is an into action. Again, this is an action task. This is not about sitting on your laurels. It's into action, get moving. It says it is easy to let up on the spiritual program of action and rest on our laurels. We are headed for trouble if we do, for alcohol is a subtle foe. We are not cured of alcoholism. What we really have is a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual condition. Our disease is a liar and liars will always win. You know, if your emotional side goes up against your intelligence, no matter how intelligent you are, your emotions will always win out when you're not in fit spiritual condition. And we heard that from Gail. It's very, very subtle. It's a subtle foe. And we have to remember that. And I think we can both agree that we didn't enlarge our spiritual life towards the end of us going into relapse, you know. And then it says again, the next three quotes are in working with others. And it says nothing will so much ensure immunity from drinking as intensive work with other alcoholics, compulsive overeaters. This is the only time, and it's very apt that in the time of the pandemic that immunity is mentioned because it's the only time it mentions immunity. This is like, immunity is like complete protection. You know, nothing will ensure as much as working with other people, getting out of our own head, stop self-obsessing, which I do all the time when I'm not in a good place. And it says helping others is the foundation stone of our recovery. It's not one of the stones, it's the foundation. You can build your house in sand and it collapses or you can build it on rocks. This is a foundation stone for us to help people. You know, this is what will keep us well, hearing other people. And you know, they always say the newcomer is the most important in the room. I have to be reminded on a daily basis how bad my disease can get and how wonderful and freeing it can be without it. Again, 102, keep on the firing line of life with these motives, i.e. helping others, and God will keep you unharmed. This is kind of about the contract that Gail talked about. It's like a covenant. You have a covenant with God. God can only do for us what we can't do for ourselves, but he can't do what we can do. You know, we, I have to choose 
there, I have to choose not to buy my binge foods. I have to choose to, you know, look at my alcoholic foods. These are important things for me. It's not, you know, God, I can ask, seek his guidance for sure, but there, I have a responsibility in my program. You know, I have to thoroughly follow that path that we talked about. And then we go on to, to the wives. Oh, by the way, about keep that also, that quote is about keeping in the middle of the herd. I've written that as a wee note. And I always have to look at my motives. It says in Two of the Wives on page 119, the fact is that he should work with other people to maintain his own sobriety. Again, another lesson, work with others, get out of your own head. Because, you know, as I was always somebody who did a lot of things for other people, but there was always caveats to it. And, I'm, you know, there was always motives. There, it was never done clear. Now I do it with a, now I serve, you know, I serve with a servant heart and it's done with grace and humility most of the time. And like Gail says, my poor husband as well. <laughs> it's not always done with grace and humility, but most of the time it is. Um, so it says to get over drinking will require a transformation of thought and attitude. We all had to replace, we all had to place recovery above everything. I always hear people say abstinence is the most important thing. For me personally, my relationship with my higher power is actually my most important thing because if I block off the sunlight of the spirit, if I block off my channel to God, all I can hear is white noise and food thoughts. That's all I can hear. And for that, that is the most important thing. But it requires a transformation of thought and attitude because our old ideas did not work. It tells us that in the book. You know, we have got to, we have got to completely change or, or it'll kill us. It makes that really clear in the big book. And I know I got up to 380 pounds. I know how, how dangerous this illness can be. Um, and again, it says in a vision for you, they had to give others what they found or be sunk. Don't be a robber. I always say that to my sponsees. Don't be a thief. Don't come in and go to meetings and listen to these wonderful podcasts and do nothing. We are there to help other people. Trust me. I get calls sometimes. My phone rings. Sometimes I roll my eyes. Not at the person, just at the disturbance of me thinking about what I could watch on Netflix or what I could buy. <laughs> you know, there's always something. There's always some, something to entertain me. The disease of more, there's always something. You know, I, I still look for effect in certain things. It's just not the food, thank God. But you know, you've just, it's so great. You know, I, every single call I've ever taken, if I've eye rolled or thought, oh, I was hoping to get a bath or something silly like that, it's always been wonderful. And it's always been God given. And I've always been grateful for it, you know. And then it says, you don't, you have just tapped a source of power much greater than yourself to duplicate such backing. What we have accomplished is only a matter of willingness, patience and labor. It works with you if you work. I wrote faith without works is dead. And I want to say I laugh at the word patience because it's one of my worst character defects. I have no patience. It's something I have to work on on a regular basis. So I'm going to hand it over to Susan now to set up the writing exercise. Over to you, Susan. Okay. All right. So what is going to happen now is you're going to have five minutes to do some writing. And after that, so don't leave just because I'm saying there's some writing to do. We're going to have 10 minutes to hear from you on your writing. So we are going to have this be interactive. And then we're going to go back to Gail and Rita for a little bit more wisdom on relapse and then Rita's going to share her story. Okay, so I'm going to start the timer now and I will tell you when your five minutes are up. Thank you. Okay, here we go.
Okay, that was time. All right, so we're now going to take 10 minutes and invite you to share some of your bullet points from your writing. Um, just please note that we have 10 minutes, so please be brief because it's a little hard to give three minutes to each person. Um, I want everybody to have a voice if at all possible. Okay, let's start out with May PH. Go ahead, please. Hi everyone, May Recovering Compulsive Overeater. Thank you all for your service. Um, my personal warning signs of relapse are when I'm falling into self-pity and feel restless and going into self-deprecating thinking. When I feel like I need to find something exciting and start imagining what I could eat that could be exciting. Um, I see all of those as uh, dangers to relapse. Um, what I have recently been doing is um, diverting myself, going to immediately going to my higher power and talking about what I'm feeling and giving it to all those feelings to my higher power, as well as journaling. Um, and um, that has been very helpful. Thanks, everybody. Thank you so much. Okay. Next, let's go over to Ireland. Audrey, go ahead, please unmute. Thanks a million. Um, yeah, I suppose signs for me would be definitely um, increased in behaviours, agitation, restless, discontent, and then isolating. You know, I'll start off not doing a meeting, not doing, you know, instead of two phone calls, it'd be one, and then it would be looking for that. Um, just indulging in some sort of behavior that I was getting the effect from, um, you know, if it was overspending and then just allowing the delusion to come in, you know, me getting back in the driver's seat, you know, and taking over from the higher power. Um, and yeah, just get back into self pity and, um, yeah, that's it. Pass. Thank you so much. Oh, Ray, go ahead, please. Yeah, um, if I start to see a lot of red missed calls on my phone, the voicemail start to accumulate. That means I'm not returning calls. I'm isolating. Um, uh, also, uh, inconsistent morning and nightly routine. That's something that uh, it's a slippery slope. And um, when I start to feel resistance toward weighing and measuring, um, you know, when I'm not as diligent about weighing my vegetables or, you know, things like that um and bothered by people places and things consistently that means i'm not i'm not talking enough i'm not sharing enough so yeah thank you now we'll go over to new york susan d go ahead please hi i'm susan a compulsive overeater and i am into relapse now i recognize the warning sign which was to stop going to meetings and to stop caring. This is dangerous for me since I have diabetes and other physical issues. When I am no longer excited about going to a meeting, I know something is up. I find myself annoyed by everyone and everything. I see the tiny annoyances becoming large and overwhelming. It will take a lot of energy to get me out of this mindset. Thank you and I'll pass and listen to others. Thank you. Now we're going to go over to Cork in Ireland to Brid. Go ahead, please. 
Hi there. Yeah. Um, my things will be less meetings, avoiding sharing at meetings, hiding, lurking, listening, not sharing, um, not doing my step tens, not planning, getting cocky and complacent, avoiding people in recovery, isolating myself, um, overworking, um, pulling back from OA, messy food, messing with times, taking a day off, thinking I'm not as bad as or better than other people, comparing myself, building up resentments against others in the fellowship, getting restless, irritable, discontent, and so on. Thank you. Thank you. Now we'll fly over to the East Coast. Kim D in New York, go ahead and unmute. Hi, can you hear me? Okay, cool. Hi, I'm Kim D in New York. Um, so for me, it's changing food in my plan just because I want to, um, placing other things, people or situations ahead of my recovery work in terms of priority, missing meetings, skipping prayer meditation, avoiding calls, um, self-pity, resentment, and gossip, but then not talking about it, not processing it with others, and um, not telling my sponsor of stuff avoiding you know being honest basically that's it thank you now we'll go we'll stay on the east coast we'll go to stephanie in boston go ahead and unmute great thank you stephanie compulsive overeater uh here are my top five um not my, not planning my meals in the morning not sending them to my sponsor thinking i've got this or when i start thinking that I'm normal. Uh, dining out in a restaurant more than one time per, per week and nibbles, bits, bites, and food in between my three meals. Thank you. Thank you. Then back over to the West Coast, we'll go to Deanna J followed by Deborah M. Go ahead, Deanna, please. Uh, internal warning signs. My signs were self-centered fear, about changes in my life, anxiety, sadness, kind of masses, numbness, more fear, indecision, panic, uh, externally codependency, desperately grasping at sponsor and fellows to make decisions for me or talk to me, my body weight dropping consciously and uh, to unhealthy levels, food decision trouble, possible under eating resulting in weight drop, turning down speaking opportunities, turning down sponsorship opportunities, not sharing and or processing all the things in my life like moving, death, changes in dreams, decline in personal hygiene, erratic eating patterns, overeating fats, and an increase in uh, sugar, which was a signal for me of emotional and spiritual decline. Pass. Okay, we'll go to Deborah, then Steve W. Go ahead, Deborah, please. Um, uh, many of the things that have already been said by everybody that's for sure it also inconsistent behavior not returning phone calls not calling my sponsor as a bulimic um which is a disease of passing when you're really in your disease sneaky behavior any kind of sneaky behavior lying but mostly lying by omission lying by omission and failing to plan is planning to fail um, hiding food, like I, I live with my husband and if I put something away because I can, won't share it. So hiding food um, are signs of relapse for me. Thanks. Go ahead, Steve, please. Steve Wills, compulsory eater, bulimic. Uh, complacency, feeling like I've got this. I think somebody else said that too. Um, uh, inaction, 
Um, pretty much around everything. You know, um, if I'm not doing the steamable things and staying to the things I'm supposed to do in the day, I don't keep my self-esteem, um, which procrastination piggybacks on that. Um, stop calling in my food. I got to call in my food every day. If I don't do that, I'm screwed. Um, and, uh, you know, I think one of the most important thing for me is avoiding my 10th step and letting my fourth step get bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, if I'm not taking care of the things that I screw up and people I offend, uh, then um, I abuse myself. And the last thing, the very last thing is I got to work all nine OA tools. Um, I can't work eight. It's really weird, but I have to work all nine of them. Thanks. You're muted. Tony, go ahead and unmute, please. Hi. Um, nine months out of relapse yesterday. Whoop. Um, boredom. Do I really have to do this? Uh. Or the flip side of that for me is I got this. That's when Captain Cocky makes an appearance. Um, I'll just. That's when I start substituting and reasoning and manipulating. And it turns into fibbing about amounts of my food. Then it turns into fibbing about my food. I don't want to go to another meeting. I don't want to make another phone call. Everybody's an asshole. Fuck this. And what's the use? That's the downward spiral for me. Thank you. And lastly, we'll go over to Lauren W. Go ahead, Lauren, please. Hi, Lauren, compulsive overeater. Um, I don't make my breakfast or lunch in, um, in the evening, so I don't, I have to do it in the morning and I don't have time for reading and writing and praying. Um, I get on my phone in the morning, so I don't pick up my pencil and books. I don't call people. I don't talk at meetings. I begin to think that I have um, tremendous self-reliance and I can do this um, on my own and I judge others so that I have a reason not to call them and find them. And in the end, there's no one to call because I've judged, I've judged everybody. <laughs> so I don't need to call anybody and I can stay in self-reliance and self-pity. Thank you. Thank you. Sorry, that is our 10 minutes, but there will be more time. So if you didn't get to share this time, you will near the end or again after the next writing exercise. Okay, ladies, back over to you. Thank you so much. And thank you to everybody for participating in that. It was so wonderful to, to listen to you, your thoughts and ideas. So I'm now really delighted to introduce my wonderful friend, Rita. At the very first meeting I attended back in 2008, I was told of this really incredible, amazing, inspirational woman not much else to protect her anonymity. But the following night, I went to what transpired, Rita's home meeting, and it transpired that that incredible woman was Rita. And I am delighted to have been on that journey with her ever since, both in and out of the fellowship. I give you the one and only Rita Q. Oh, thank you, Gail. Oh, that's lovely. Incredibly good friends as well, which is really lucky. That's the good thing about this. You get the fellowship, you grave, you know. So I'll just qualify briefly. I want to tell you a bit of my story to make sense of the relapse, if that makes sense. So my name is Rita Q. I'm a recovering compulsive overeater. I was born in Northern Ireland. I grew up. I have always been a compulsive overeater. I want to make that really clear. Um, I always hear people saying, oh, because I'm hungry, I'm angry, I'm lonely, tired, having a pulse. 
is basically what makes me eat when I'm in the food. It doesn't matter what it is. I just want to eat. I have food thoughts all the time. I am just dogged by it. And, you know, Bill says very clearly in the story, alcohol was my master. That's what he says in the big book. Food was my master. Food was everything. It was my lover, my best friend, my one steady companion. It was the one thing I knew that would always be there. I didn't drink alcohol till I was 18. I am not an alcoholic, but I came to university in the UK. And because of that, when I started to drink alcohol, it was a gateway drug to the food. I came from a very small town to this, at the time, what I thought was a huge city. It's actually quite small, Manchester. Um, and, you know, I just, all these, there were all these outlets of my, you know, of my drug foods. I couldn't believe it. And I just wanted more and more because I have a disease of more. And I always laugh. I've always told Susan and Andre, I've talked to her, I say, you know, I didn't get here because I had a snack accident. I really didn't. I got here because I could not stop eating. Now, I would love to tell you that my life was unmanageable. Um, but you know what? I, I as well, I'm in a very happy marriage. I have a lot, you know, I have a nice house. I, you know, I'm retired. You, on paper, everything looked great, but there was a part of me that was just septic inside that was dead. I was trying to fill a God-shaped hole inside of me, but I just couldn't do it. I just couldn't. And the food wouldn't work. And as, um, you know, I, I, would, I didn't look at what the food was doing to me. I just looked at what it was doing for me. And one thing I'll say, the steps will do for you what the food does without all the horrific consequences. So my brother tried to approach me about OA years ago, way before I came in. And I was like, you know, it says in the doctor's opinion really clearly, there's one paragraph that I absolutely love. And there's a pre and a post relapse. Look at this paragraph. And it's the one that says men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. Although we know it's injurious, we cannot, after a time, differentiate the true from the false. Their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. My compulsive overeating life was the normal one. I never knew I, I had an addiction. I really didn't. Everybody saw it. I was 280 pounds. How could you not see it? So, you know, for me, it just got, it was just such a part of normality. The food, it was just, it was everything. It was so normal. And um, the, the overeating, you know, I was, I used to share, I'd go to birthday parties when I was a kid and everybody was playing games, pinning the tail on the donkey. I was pinning the fork into the cocktail sausages. I just could not stop eating. You know, I mightn't have a needle in my hand, but I have a fork in my hand and that will kill me as quick when I'm in relapse. So I came to OA after a horrific Christmas in 2002, I got diagnosed with a very rare autoimmune disease and had to have a lot of chemotherapy and I got put in steroids. And I ballooned, I mean ballooned, and uh, not because of the steroids, I'm not going to blame the medication, but it was like lighting petrol for me, and I just couldn't stop eating. And then it was the Christmas of 2002, I was home in Ireland, and the nieces and nephews were really young, so they had little Santa stations everywhere, you know, and I was like, I'd go to the bathroom, which was at the back of the, in the downstairs bathrooms at the back of the house behind the kitchen, so I'd make sure that I plan my route via all the treats. And I just couldn't stop eating. My sister-in-law, who's gorgeous, said to me, who would never say boo to a goose, said, are you okay? You, can't, you don't seem to be able to stop eating. I was mortified. I couldn't believe she noticed. I thought, what the hell? I, did, I didn't see that coming. 
And I remember my brother told me about, about a way and then I went, I went in January and I went the January of 2003, I think it was, and I got really excited and I thought, oh great, I'll go in there, everybody will be massive. I won't, for once, I won't be the biggest person in the room. And I went in and everybody was slim. I was devastated. And then I heard about eating out of bins, people talking about eating out of bins all this year. And I'm thinking, oh, I don't do that. And then I realized it never got to the bin with me. I had it hoovered up. I mean, I was better than a Dyson when it came to food. You know, I just could not stop eating. So I heard about three meals a day. So I thought I'll try that shenanigans for a while. Used to the pay and ways, done them all. I've not done surgery either, but I've done everything else. Short of drinking my own way, I've done everything, trust me. And uh, I, you know, I came three meals a day. I got that and I thought, right, I'll only have dessert. I'll only have sweet stuff when I go out. My husband and I have no children. And then all of a sudden he starts saying, I mean, God, we're eating out an awful lot. And I'm like, are we? I hadn't noticed. Of course, I hadn't noticed. I was manipulating the whole thing. We used to share a dessert. I mean, my poor husband must have thought he was on the Titanic because the dessert would start going down the table towards me, you know. And then I so I stopped that. And then I thought, right, I'll just have a sweet drink when I come in from work. Hot chocolate. I hope it's OK to mention it. So that would be around about seven o'clock at night and then it was four o'clock in the afternoon and then it got to midday and then I was going out at break time and I'm thinking this is not right. So I gave it up. So and I got brilliant, you know, I got really good recovery. And if you put the photos up, Susan, now I'll be able to talk through them. This is this is recovery going into relapse now. OK, so here we are. Top left. Let me see. Top left. That's my wedding day. 2008. I'd lost 140 pounds. Everything was great. I had such peace. The white noise had stopped. The feelings of self-hatred had stopped. I didn't hate myself anymore. I wasn't thinking, I need to eat because I'm crap. You're crap. You've eaten, so you're crap, blah, blah, blah. Second photo. Now, my relapse came on my honeymoon. We went around the world for three months. On a flight from Las Vegas to Los Angeles, they presented a snack box and it was lunchtime. So I picked it up. There was something inside it that I was on my what I would now call as an alcoholic food. And I thought, I'll be all right. I'll just have one. I had that lurking notion of talks about, all went well for a time and it failed to enlarge his spiritual life. My ego yet again had taken over. I thought I'd be okay. I thought I could just have one. And you know what, like Gail shared in her story, I did get away with it, you know, I got away with it. But I noticed things started to get noisy again. And then I went to that photo of me and my husband is in Hong Kong. And by then I'd had a few things and we were staying in a really nice hotel and they'd laid out loads of treats. And I remember thinking, oh, I can just have one of them. By the time I got home, my just one was turning into five and 10 and 15. I have a disease and more. I will die a compulsive overeater. I just want more all the time. More, 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 more Netflix, more handbags, more ridiculous clothes I don't need. So um, I then uh, went into, I went into relapse for years on and off and a lot, a lot of life stuff happened. My dad dropped dead and then my mother dropped dead within a year. And then I got stage four cancer, as you can see in the photos. I got up to 380 pounds. That's the photo of me with one of my best friends. Actually, she was really good to me. She used to visit me all the time. That is unrecognizable. Actually, that's in the garden. I was very, very, very ill. I had sepsis nine times. And I want to explain to you what got me back into a way. So there, I just literally, I was getting irritable, restless and discontent all the time. I was resentful all the time. I was fearful all the time. 
And uh, that photo of me with my hands and my head, that basically sums up relapse to me. It do, it not only does it sum up cancer, it sums up relapse because it was just horrendous. And, you know, I still went out, I still traveled, but there was just this uninvited guest in the house all the time playing loud music. And I didn't like it. And I didn't know how to get rid of it. And I remember at the time actually having a conversation with Gail and she said to me, why can't you get out of the food? And I remember, I don't want to swear on the recording, but I remember saying, because I don't give a flying fork, I'm going to say fork. Um, I just, I wanted the food more. And then I had a massive spiritual awakening. Now this does not happen for everybody, but it had to happen to me. I know now because my disease was so strong. They always say, oh, when your disease, you know, when you're not meeting your diseases outside doing press-ups, Mine had done the New York Marathon, had a personal trainer, was off to the Olympics. I'm telling you, it was, my disease was phenomenal. And, um, you know, I basically was in the bath. I've told the story a lot and apologies if you've heard it before, but it was a really big deal to me. I was in the bath in hospital and I had blood cancer, so it was bone marrow pain. It was horrendous. Morphine wasn't working and I thought, I'm going to have a hot bath. 380 pounds getting into the bath rookie mistake when you're big I let the water go out first I, I must have waited about two you know god knows what by then I could have no strength left and they had a toggle to call the nurse because I had like my own nurse and it had a toggle to call her in and I thought I can't pull this because she's not going to be able to pick me up the poor woman will break her back and I thought right and I sat there and she started to cry didn't cry much about the cancer just took it it was a journey I had to do it and you had to get on with it but this had got me it really had got me. Alcohol was my master. Food had become my master again. I couldn't believe I was in this position. And I began to cry. And I heard God say really clearly, you need to go back to away. I got out of hospital a couple of weeks later. I got out of my wheelchair and I drove into the city centre and I went to my first meeting. That was over two years ago. Two years, about two years, five months. I got abstinent. I got abstinent because I let God in. Because the thing is, my ego had taken over. And ego has three things. Make me right make me different and make me feel good right now. You know, my heart wants to serve, but my ego wants to reign. You know, you serve in hell, what is it? You serve in heaven or reign in hell. And my ego wants to reign. It always, always wants to be in control. So I had to get out of my own way and I let God in. And before what I'd done during relapse, I did get pockets of abstinence, by the way. I got a year or two here and there. It wasn't complete relapse, full stop. But, you know, I let God, what I used to do was I put God in a room. I'd say, right, make me win the lottery. Make me look like Al McPherson. I'll be back to you when I finish binging. That's how it worked with God. That covenant was broken. That, that channel that I had to God, the God of my understanding, it was gone. I couldn't hear him because I didn't want to listen. I wanted him to listen to me. Like I wanted everybody to listen to me. I know what's best for me, you know. And I wasn't working with others. It was similar, very similar to what Gail had said. I'd stopped doing working with others. I, you know, I can't save somebody from drowning if I can't swim myself. So I had to look. And what was different this time, men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. Although they know it was injurious, I knew it was injurious now. I'd learned that part of that quote. I knew what the injurious meant. And I thought, you know what, there's something in the big book. And I did get well the first time through your way. I'm not saying anything for me, but for me, understand the allergy of the body and the disease of the mind and the mental twist. That knock on the door that I used to hear all the time. Oh, just have one. You'll be okay. You're a wee bit fearful. Just have one. Fear is false evidence appearing real. 
you know, we hear this a million times in the room, feelings aren't facts and they don't require action. My life required action all the time, action of eating, scooping up the food, action of telling you exactly what to do, my action of talking about all this, whatever it was, it was negative action. Now I went into action, action about working a program, working the steps, submission, you know, step one to three is about giving up. It's about giving up and giving it to God. Four to six is cleaning up, seven to nine is making up. And my favorite 10 to 12 is growing up, you know, something that I really had to do again. You know, and it says, um, I have another breakdown of it, that one is admission, two to seven are submission, eight to nine is restitution, and 10, 11, and 12 is reconstruction. And that's the quote we talked about. We were reborn. I felt, I felt reborn by doing the steps in the sense that I had to have a massive psychic change again. I had to do that. I just couldn't do it without, without God's help. I had to get out of his way. And it, it says clearly, if you feel in a larger spiritual life, that's where, you know, that's where I went wrong. Faith without works is dead. And I get complacent. I have days, like I said to you, like I shared honestly, sometimes I think, oh, I really don't want to do a call. I really don't want to do this. But you know, every time I do, I just get filled with so much love. And you know, humility for me now has been the best version I can be. It's been the best person that I can be for the people around me. You know, I always think to myself, what was it like living with me today? I always think to my husband when I was in the disease, what was it like living with me today? because some days it's horrendous some days it's not good you know and don't get me wrong I don't want you to sit there and think I'm like Gandhi you know levitating here perfectly I get days where I slam the door I get days where I want to you know and I find the other day I had a really funny somebody cut me up really really badly this is sorry if this is on the recording this is a vigil thing and you know I really wanted to go as I drove past and I didn't I just went oh and just kind of rubbed coughed you know because God steps in. I find God now steps in and prods me. I don't always know what he wants me to do, but I know what he doesn't want me to do. And I will never rise above being a human. You know, God is bigger than anything. And you know, my disease was horrendous. It was so strong. So my covenant with God now is so important, my higher power. And I was hopeless when I came back into the rooms. And you know, it was a good place to be now looking back because when you're hopeless, you can find hope again. That's a good thing. I want to tell everybody on this call who thinks they are not going to get out of relapse, you will get out of relapse if you work the steps like your hair is on fire. It is very easy to work the tools and not the steps. It's easy to work the tools and not the steps, but it's impossible to work the steps without the tools. The tools will be the banister to take you up the steps. You can lean on them, but you need to do that massive. It is cultivating you are weeding the garden and my garden was full of weeds Japanese knotweed trust me you couldn't have got it out God had to pull it out and you know now I'm very clear on my alcoholic foods what I can have and what I can't have and sometimes sort of there's certain parts of things I can have and certain parts of things that I can't and I think how free do I want to be how free do I want my life to be I don't want that you know I don't want that white noise anymore I just don't want it and it talks in that quote we talked about immunity. You know, the only way of getting immunity for me is to keep working with others, is to know what I'm having. And I love that somebody said planning to fail is, you know, failing to plan is planning to fail. And, you know, that for me is so true. And I've had to work hard. I've released now about, I think, 80 pounds or something along those lines. But, you know, the weight 
is going to go, it'll come off as I continue to work the program. You know, part of me knows that unless I, ha I have to keep God as my compass. You know, I always talk and if people say, but what does that look like? You know, I always tell them about the Indiana Jones. Harrison Ford was my first crush ever. And the Indiana Jones scene in, I think it's Temple of Doom, he's asked to step out into a bridge he can't see. And he's like, this is what faith looks like. And he throws the gravel down and you kind of see the makings of a bridge. It's like using your iPhone camera. When you put your iPhone camera out as a torch, you can only see a bit of the road in front of you. But to walk that road, you need to take a step. You need to move your feet. God will do for you what you cannot do for yourself, but he will not do what you can. And I learned that. And I always think, is this something God wants me to be thinking about? Is this something God wants me to be doing before I check myself? And just to remember that, you know, frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices. I love that quote because people used to say to me, could you not think about eating a bit, a bit less? Would you not think about eating? And I'm thinking, are you insane? I, do you not think I've thought that? And it's only now looking back. I just can't believe I didn't realize I was an addict. I actually can't believe it, but it's so obvious now. And the pattern, it's a very insidious disease. And one thing I will say, having, having relapsed so badly, I couldn't believe its power. It was like a raging bull. My, my, what I want, you know, I wanted the food more than anything. I wanted it more than I wanted the recovery, but now I really want the recovery. It's the most important thing in my life. You know, staying well means that I can, you know, I can be well for others. I can be there, I can help people, and that's what I want to do. You know, helping others, like it says a million times, is the foundation stone of our recovery. And we are powerless, not helpless. So I, you know, the, the helpless part, you know, it's not there. I just need to. I need to do what I can do. And every day, what that looks like for me is eating an abstinent breakfast, an abstinent lunch, and an abstinent dinner. It's my photographs. You know, I photograph my food. I send it over to my sponsor. But most importantly, this time around, I've had to really strengthen my relationship with my higher power. I always had a strong belief in God, by the way. But like I said, God was locked in a box while I binged. God was shut out. Well, I gossiped. God was shut out while I shouted at my husband for not cleaning the counters properly. Honestly, I would turn in, I would turn him not loading the dishwasher properly into Chernobyl. It was that bad. That's how that I went from not to pissed off in 10 seconds. It was ridiculous and it was an unhappy place for him. Um, and it says, you know, one feels that something more than human power is needed to produce the entire psychic change. And it has to be God because it can't come from within me because... I just don't have that power. I just have the power to eat and eat and eat until I die. But now I want to live until I die. And you know, recovery isn't about getting what I want. It's about wanting what I have. And I really feel now I have exactly what I want for today. And I do think about my future and I think about things like, oh, what if, what if, what if? And I do have moments the other day, and it's been a long time since I've had thoughts like this, but I wanna just reassure people I thought, oh my gosh, imagine if I relapsed. And then I thought, well, that's not my truth today. That's not where I'm at today. Today I'm following my plan. I'm making my calls. I'm doing my writing. I'm owning my, you know, 11 and 10 and 11 and 12. And step one, before my feet touch the ground in the morning, I say I'm a compulsive reader and I say, God, take this 
day for me because if you don't, I will make a complete shit show of it. So please do it for me. Excuse my language, ladies and gents. So, you know, that's that's what I do. I own any resentments, fears, whatever, irritability. I call people per girls tortured. I call other people. <laughs> I reach out, I write it down, I own it. And then once a week I have a call with my sponsor, I share through, I do a mini step four, I share through my resentment, my fear, my sex conduct, whatever I need to do. And we discuss anything that's overlying. I work with others. I sponsor people and I have a sponsor who has a sponsor and that is so important to me. I need the objectivity because my glasses can only see one way and it's a one-way street and I can't, you know, I need others. I need a strong, I need to be in the middle of the herd. I need people who are going to be honest with me, who love me. And I also need to remember that God is in charge, not me. So that's like, that's my, that's probably the main thing for me now is my relationship with God. It's talking to him, it's talking to him in the car. It's, you know, it's acting as if when I think I can't, it's that Indiana Jones thing again. It's throwing the gravel out, taking a step forward and hoping for the best that I'm not going to drown. I can only keep my side of the street clean. I'd love to tell you all exactly where you're going wrong, but I can't because it doesn't, it's not, that's not my business. That's none of my business. All my business is, is my relationship with God. And the stronger that is, the better my life is and the cleaner my life will be. And, you know, I have a freedom today. It says we are not a glum lot. I'm definitely not a glum lot, you know. We're definitely not. And I can tell you now, you know, I am happy, joyous and free. I don't mean to say that there's days I don't get narky or grumpy, like I said, I do. And that's okay. I'm a human being. And I'll never, ever rise above being a human being, unfortunately. As much as I'd love to sometimes. My ego would anyway. Um, and if you just put up the last picture, Susan, again, if you could just put them up again. I'll just run through the last three, I think, if that's okay. If you can. I think it was the last three. I wanted to wear my hat today, my silver AF hat, but I couldn't find it. I can't find it anywhere. And I was really annoyed. I was like, oh, thought that would have been nice. There we go. So again, so like I said, the, I wanted just to say that picture in red with me kind of put my hand on my chest. That was about, I think that was the first week back in the way. Obviously my hair is short growing back from the cancer. That silver AF is quite important because that was me taking a road trip to Cornwall down south. And, you know, I had kind of stepped off going to visit people, going to do things that were good for me. And that photo there this morning is just taken live this morning. Um, and uh, yeah, looks like I've got no um, teeth on, on the sober one, but anyway. So that's it. And like I said, the one in purple on my head over a sick bowl, that is relapse. That's what it looks like physically, even though that is what cancer looks like as well. It's what relapse looks like to me. Just hopelessness, but not today. That's not the story today. So I will leave it there. You can stop sharing and we can move on to the slide, if that's okay, which is our big book on wisdom. Yeah, big book wisdom on relapse. So if you want to throw that slide up, Susan and I will talk you through these. You got me again for a bit. There's Gail moving back. Okay, so it says of alcoholics who came to AA and really tried, 50 got sober at once and remained that way. 25% sobered up after some relapses. And among the remainder, those who stayed on with their AA showed improvement. You know, this shows you get what you put in. This gives you hope. This really gives you hope. This, this part, this quote, you know, some people don't relapse. And God, I love the people who don't. I, I'm, I'm full of admiration, you know. 
And then it says, for if an alcoholic failed to perfect and enlarge his spiritual life through work and self-sacrifice for others, he could not sur survive the certain trials and low spots ahead. This is what I talked about in my story. You know, when I cut God off, when, that when I change the channel and can't quite tune it back in, everything goes crazy. I can't survive my husband not loading the dishwasher properly. I can't survive somebody cutting me up on the motorway. I can't survive the simplest of things. I'm actually very good with big, you know, when they told me my diagnosis that was stage four and, you know, it was going to be a fight for my life, that, you know, I was okay with that. I accepted that and I accepted all the treatment, you know, but it's the small things that get me. And it says in that resentment, it says in the big book clearly that resentment is the number one factor that kills alcoholics. And, you know, I could resent a fly, you know, in my bathroom, just silly things. And then it says, if you are seriously as alcoholic as we were, we believe there is no middle of the road situation. I tried it. I tried just one. And you know what? It got me 180 pounds heavier. Not only had I put on the 140 pounds, I had gone up even more because that's a, it's a disease of more. I didn't say, you know, I always tell people I didn't really lose weight. I just sent my weight out for reinforcements. That's all I did. And then it says, and my favorite, favorite quote, if we are planning to stop drinking, there must be no reservation of any kind or any lurking notion that someday we will be immune to alcohol. Fred and Jim and the big book make us really, really clear. And the definition of lurking we've put up here is remaining hidden so as to wait in ambush, ambush like a thief in a latent state, although still presenting a threat. It's there, it's prowling. I, my disease was like a lion prowling around me all the time. And for that reason, if my disease is as strong, then my recovery has to be twice as strong to combat it. My, my relationship with my higher power has to be stronger than anything to be able to defeat this disease. And it has to be done on a daily basis. I have to live in 10, 11 and 12. And remember, you know, one to nine, every day and work it like my hair is on fire and with that i will pass it over to susan i think it's back over to you susan i can unmute myself thank you okay here we go with a bit more writing so the next slide speaks to you if you are in relapse and i apologize that we didn't add this but to those who aren't in relapse if you are in recovery today your assignment is how do you stay out of relapse? So I'll start the timer in a minute. We're going to have feedback again. We look like we're running early, which will be great because we'll have more time for Q&A. So start writing and I will set the timer now for five minutes. So again, if you aren't in relapse, how do you stay out of relapse?
Okay, that was your five minutes. We are running a little bit ahead of schedule. Or maybe we're not actually. Never mind, ignore that. Okay, we are now going to take 10 minutes to share again what you've written. And we'll start in New Jersey with Evelyn. Go ahead, please. And please just note the cognizant of the time. I'm not timing you, but remember there's plenty of people who want to share. Go ahead, Evelyn, please. Thank you very much. Thank you for the meeting. Um, Evelyn, compulsive overeater and sugar addict in uh, New Jersey. What actions would I take? Um, calling my sponsor, being honest, losing the laziness um, that accompanies my relapse, uh, which is the shopping and the cooking and the food prep and oh, why do I have to do it? Open myself up as I have been isolating, uh, one of the things that got me into this. Um, lose the shame about the disease. This is not a contest, it's a disease. I am able to share this with everybody. And thankfully, these two relapse meetings were proof of that. Do my calls and meetings and no slacking, do the work. Um, I work full time, not using that for an excuse. I have so many other things to do, not using that for an excuse. This has to be first. Uh, this is my medicine uh, and I have a disease that is going to kill me without this medicine. I'm 75 years old. My body may not have much more recovery and I can't, my body cannot take this much illness uh, and the side effects that come from it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Next, we're going to go over to Europe. Let's go over to Hungary to Andrea B. Please unmute and share. Hi, everyone. Can you hear me? Can you see me? It's quite late here. So hi, everyone. It's good to, good to be in this wonderful workshop. It's amazing. And I love to be here. So anyway, what am I going to, yeah, put my recovery first and then uh, yeah, trust God and put down the food. And uh, yes, the most important thing is take care of myself and the self-hatred just doesn't work. So uh, I need to take care of myself because if I'm, if I'm abstinent, I'm just much more lovable and I can, I, can, I can give a lot. So yeah, do the work and be humble, humble. I have been in program almost more than, more than a decade and I just relapsed a lot. So for me, it's just... If my sponsor is just not fit, I change my sponsor and it's more, uh, it's more, more a healthier relationship. So, and also um, instead of damaging, I need to build, build my health, build, build my relationship. So building is more important than damaging. So yeah, that's it. Thank you. Thank you. Now we're going to go on our Zoom airplane very quickly over to Canada. Go ahead, Shannon F. Thanks, Susan. Um, Shannon, compulsive eater. Thanks everyone who's done service for this meeting. Um, get back to basics, do what works, um, seek out and maintain a good sponsor. Um, keep coming back, morning meditation every morning. That, I can't say that enough, morning meditation and prayer every morning. And set aside what you think you know and have a beginner's mindset when working the steps again, and that I pass. Thank you, Nancy P. Please go ahead and unmute. Hi, good morning. Oh no, it's a good afternoon. And thank you, Susan. And thank you, everybody. Hi, Rita. Um, 
Yeah, what I do to stay um, out of relapse. I mean, I just passed my 50th 5-0 anniversary in this program in January, and I didn't recover until um, 2017. So I have a lot of experience with relapse. But when I was ready, nothing got in the way of my recovery. I did every single thing I was told to do immediately and as hard as I could, and I still do those very same things. I still make tons of phone calls. I never say no to service. I sponsor people. You know, I'm available available for 10 steps. I make tons of outreach calls. You know, I go to meetings, I share at meetings, I listen. I just, nothing gets in the way. We, I'll say one last thing. We were driving my daughter to an emergency inpatient thing that we were going to be back around the time that I had to talk to my sponsor. I brought my big book with me and I texted my sponsor and I said, we're on our way to do this emergency thing, but I, I, and I might be late, but just in case I have my big book with me. So let me know. I mean, nothing got in the way. And she of course said, you know, take care of your family, but I was prepared and I still feel that way. So um, I'd never let any grass grow under this ever. Pass. Thank you, Nancy. Stephen G, go ahead, please. Thank you so much for this. Thank you so much for this. I wrote, stick with the plan, share in real time what's going on, play by the rules, do what my sponsor says. <clears throat> Don't tell the first small lie about my food, be of service to others, use the tools, work the steps, help someone. Don't stop talking to God and get quiet and listen. Thank you. Now we'll go over to Orange County. Eric G, go ahead, please. All right, thank you. Um, I surrender and follow my sponsor's direction on a daily basis. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, let's go over to Mia. Mia, go ahead. Hi, everybody. Um, thank you for this. I'm Mia, compulsive overeater in Massachusetts. Um, the first thing I need to do is to be honest about being in relapse and not lying about it and uh, talk to people about it. Let go of the fear. Don't be ashamed. Trust and surrender. Be clear about my red, yellow, and green foods. Put down the food. Um, do my morning and evening routine. Go to meetings. Share at meetings. Get a sponsor. Make phone calls. Have that real-time rigorous honesty um, don't hide shares if my life depends on it and have a contract and a covenant with my higher power. Thank you everybody for this amazing meeting. Thank you and hopefully I'm going to say this correctly. Pooja, if you would like to go ahead and unmute and apologies if I said it wrong. Okay, no worry about it. Everyone's mispronounce it. Hi, I'm Pooja. I'm, uh, I am expressed an emotional eater and um, to stay out of relapse, I would drink, start drinking a lot of water. Um, talk to my sponsor as much as I can, go to as many meetings as I can, and do a lot of outreach. Thank you. Thank you. Amy B, go ahead, please. Thank you. First of all, thank you, LA Intergroup, for this incredible workshop, and thank you, Rita and Gail and everyone doing service. Um, the actions that keep me out of relax, I, ha I have to practice active honesty, which means I have to do step 10s when I recognize that my defects are coming up because they do. I have to practice humility, which means I need to recognize that I'm an addict and I have to turn my thoughts off of me and I need God guidance on direction. I need to say that I don't know the answers and I need to actively practice 
my humanity, which means connecting with people and helping people, which is step 12. And I have to live in those every single day. Thank you so much. I pass. Staying on the East Coast, Simcha, go ahead, please. Uh, Simcha Compulsive Overeater. Um, so many of the things that, uh, that you've said have been helpful, and I wrote down a bunch, but um, the sentence that I wrote down that, that, that came to me that my sponsor keeps drilling into my head is that when I, when I feel resentment or I feel anxiety or I feel anger, that, that I need to do three things in this order, and I need to do it consistently, and that is pray immediately. He says that God will never let me down. Human beings will always let me down. Not always, but will at times let me down. But God will never let me down. So pray immediately to have that, that feeling removed. Uh, he then says, call one of my, um, my God squad and talk. Uh, talk to someone who is uh, an, an elder here that can, can hear me and uh, just kind of acknowledge what I'm feeling. And then the third, which is the hardest one for me, uh, call a fellow and listen. He says uh, that that's going to be the safeguard. So uh, if I can do that, and I'm practicing that, um, I need to get out of practicing it and just doing it. Thanks, and thanks for this meeting, I appreciate it. Thank you, Simha. Now we'll go to Wales. Allison with a Y, go ahead, please. Hi, I'm Allison. Um, yeah, how do I stay out of relapse? Um, by increasing my relationship with God on a daily basis, really. Um, I'm doing what I know will, you know, works. I work the program and I don't put my own slant on it today. And just by being true to myself that, and obviously, you know, working the steps, giving service, you know, doing everything I can to not go back to that dark place that I came from. So thank you. Thank you. And our last share will go over to Detroit to Lauren. Go ahead, please. Hi, I'm Lauren G, a compulsive overeater. Um, for me, uh, to stay out of relapse, I have to take action um, with everything that the program has to offer. Um, and not only taking action with the program, but also just taking action in my life. I am recently uh, coming out of a relapse of 30 days ago. And I, after talking to my sponsor uh, yesterday, I realized that I was working the program, but I was not participating in life. So I can't just work the program and then be on Facebook and watch Netflix all day. Like I can't do that. So action, action, action. And also just asking God for help. Um, I get a lot of food thoughts. And when I get those food thoughts, I just talk to God and ask for help and surrender the day to my higher power. And most of the time I am relieved of those thoughts, which I, I have thoughts they, if I don't do this work, it could end up in relapse. So yeah, action, action, action. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Several of you have been asking what the OA tools of recovery are. They are a plan of eating, sponsorship, meetings, telephone, writing, literature, anonymity, service, and an action plan. And I will put that in the chat. But again, plan of eating, sponsorship, meetings, telephone, writing, literature, anonymity, 
service and an action plan and you can easily google them and find them but i will put them in momentarily okay so now back over to gail and rita we're going to do 10 minutes of q a i'm going to lower the hands that were up before so we don't get confused if you can lower your own that would even be more helpful but i think i have it Okay, first of all, I just want to say this has been incredible. We've had the top number was 365 people. We've had people here from Hungary, Greece, Sweden, the UK, Ireland, Poland, and Mexico. Um, and I just am so appreciative, Gail and Rita, for all the hard work that you did putting this together. And thank you all of you for participating. So very excited. So we can now raise our hands for Q&A if you are shy please private message me in the chat and we are doing well on time so we're going to be able to do 15 minutes for this so again keep your questions brief so that we have time for them to respond and the first person who has a question is diana lee go ahead please hello thank you so much for putting on this wonderful workshop it's been a big help um my challenge and, and my sponsor and I, neither one can figure out exactly what happened because I do prayer and meditation every morning. I attend six or seven meetings a week. I'm the inner group rep for my home group. I sponsor five people. And yet, when I read this story in the abstinence book, I was just blown away. Then HP showed me how to move forward with humility and spirituality. One morning during my quiet time, I knew I had to admit I had broken my abstinence. I'd had no dairy hopping binges, no hiding or stealing of food. In fact, no specific moment brought me to this realization. But as God spoke to me, I recalled how often I had used my correction pen on my food plan. I have always written down my food plan, but now I saw how shrewd I had become at manipulating, deleting, and adding food to suit my whims. I justified this by telling myself I was not eating compulsively, and the eating always ended, so it couldn't be compulsive eating, could it? I had been playing games with my food and eating behaviors, and it was robbing me of serenity and spiritual peacefulness. My disease was active in its own way, and I could not justify or excuse my behaviors just because I wasn't in full-blown binging relapse. And so this was so insidious and so sneaky for me that it wasn't until I read that story, well, actually the day before I'd been talking to my spiritual director, and she said, is there anything else you need to be working on? And all of a sudden, it was like a light bulb went off. So how do you, how could I have caught this earlier when I, I don't see how I can do any more service or any more working of the tools? And if you can help me with that, I'd really appreciate it. Thank you. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank Oh, sorry, we're on mute. Thanks so much for your question, Diana. Um, I think personally, for me, you, you said about using the Tipex pen on it. It's about working out your bottom lines. What are your bottom lines? And my bottom line, for example, was getting in the car. One of them, no fast food, you know, not going through the drive through One of them was, you know, not getting in the car and buying my bench foods. And I remember when I was in relapse that that happened. And I thought, oh, heck, I've broken all my bottom lines. It's not just about your food plan. It's what's around that. It's the behaviors. So what are the behaviors? Chopping and changing your food plan. You're trying to suit your moods. That's what you're doing. You're just, oh, you know what? I don't want this today. X will make me feel better. Y won't do it. So, you know, it's that kind of 
that that's what for me I would maybe put that in where you don't change it I had a sponsor years ago who wouldn't let me change what I ate and if I did she pulled me on it straight away so it's that goes back to that failing to plan planning to fail and it's just you know we can go to 100 meetings a week and you know that expression meeting makers make it now they don't they just go to a lot of meetings that's all they do it's action 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 you know and putting that down, making sure that your boundaries, it's not just boundaries of people, it's boundaries around your food plan and boundaries around your program. Do you want to say something? Sorry. Yeah, and I, and I would just say what works for me is committing my food mm -hmm. and not changing it unless I took something out of the fridge and it was off, you know, And but I would do that in discussion with my sponsor. So just not messing about with my food. Um, and I would really ask myself, am I following the instructions in the big book? absolutely explicitly because actually I can be given all the service in the world yeah but actually if I am not keeping my channel clear and my connection with my higher power through 10 and 11 and the instructions could not be clearer on 10 and 11 then that is what I have to do so I hope that helps thank you thank you Thank you. And I was remiss in saying that we had two fellows here from Israel. I'm sorry. You must have come <laughs> on after I scrolled. Next, we're going to go to in LA, my friend Michelle G. And then I have a couple of questions here in the chat and then we'll keep going. Go ahead, Michelle. Thank you, Susan. Thank you, everyone, for putting this on today. Michelle, compulsive overeater. I heard mentioned uh, several times the word covenant or a covenant God or higher power. Can you please define what you mean or describe what you mean by that thank you sure yeah i think i mentioned the covenant it's uh, i think gail said contract actually covenant comes from a podcast actually i'd heard um uh, a guy give an aa but it's about it's a contract really it's an agreement between you and your higher power so you're going to show up he's going to do for you what you can't do for yourself but you're going to do the part you can you're going to get a sponsor you're going to do what she sets you to do. You know, you're going to make a strong food plan. You're going to agree to stay away from your alcoholic foods. You're going to go to meetings. You're going to shut your mouth and listen to other people. Not you necessarily, but that for me was a big one. Um, you know, that's part of the contract, but you can define the contract as well. Like I, I defined the contract with God in the sense that for me, it was surrender. I said, okay, God, we're in a contract. You tell me you're my boss. You're my site manager. You're my project manager. You tell me what I need to do. And, you know, I look to other people who have good recovery and I know what I need to do. So that's what I mean, really. It's, 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 it's your agreement on your side of your recovery. It goes back to being powerless, but not helpless. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I use the word contract, which is very similar to what Rita was talking about, because the big book tells us that God does not make it too. God does not make the terms too hard for those who seek him for it. Um, and, you know, it tells us later on that what we need to do to keep our recovery is keep close to our higher power and perform our higher powers work well. And I interpret that to be that is my contract with my higher power. My higher power will keep me in this recovered state if I do those two things. Um, so yeah, hope that helps, thank you. Thank you, now I have a question in the chat for you, Gail. Somebody would like to know how you finally got out of your relapse, please. Okay, so um, I wish I knew um, and I wish I could bottle it, but, but I can't. Uh, something happened to me on the 21st of March, 2019. 
um, I have a beautiful fellow that I outreach with and she often says that at the beginning of meetings when we talk about having a moment silence for the still suffering compulsive overeater that's when we're prayed in or prayed back into the rooms and maybe that happened to me I don't know but we were on the verge of going into a full lockdown in the UK and I just had this overwhelming sense that oh my god I could beat myself to death during this time I Tired. my husband was still working I was home alone and something just got me into the first zoom meeting in Manchester um, and I asked Rita could I just commit my food to her um, before until I got a sponsor and the miracle just happened I just got a tiny tiny bit of God's grace in my life and I just started working the steps with a sponsor through the big book and you know 17 months later, you know, I, I am in this amazing position just for today. So I'm not sure what it was, but something just happened on the 21st of March. Yes, there was a bit of fear, but that's not enough to keep me abstinent. Uh, all I can explain is, is, you know, I surrendered and I just let a bit of God that I didn't even understand and was actually really angry about because of my relapse. Um, I, something, something, just a bit of grace came, came into my life. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, Deanna J, can you hear your question, please? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, ladies. I have two questions, actually, and if, forgive me if the first one is too personal. Please feel free to bypass it. I was wondering if either of you struggled with any mental health conditions that might have impaired your ability to work your program, and if so, how you handled that. Um, and my second question would be, do your sponsees have the same abstinence that you have? So uh, in response to your first question, I have no experience of that, no. And in response to your second question, uh, for me, sorry, did you say the same abstinence? Yeah. 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 So yes, they have the same abstinence as me because the definition of abstinence is that I refrain from compulsive eating and compulsive food behaviours. So if I'm working with a sponsee that's abstinent, yes, they have the same abstinence as me. If you're referring to a food plan, um, then no, they don't, because, you know, I don't even know what I should eat. So I absolutely don't know what somebody else should eat. Uh, but there are lots of tools that we can use for that. And we can seek outside help to help us create a plan of eating. Um, that's just my personal experience. That's how I, I was sponsored. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if Rita wants to answer yeah. that. Thanks for the question. Yeah, I agree with that. But, uh, you know, absence is the same for everybody. It's the act of refraining from compulsive overeating, compulsive food behaviours. It's the food plan that's different for everybody. There's certain things that maybe I could eat, the Gail couldn't or vice versa. Uh, mental health, yes. Myself, I've had like depression um, um, and anxiety in the past and still do have a touch of anxiety because I got pushed into chemical menopause during the chemotherapy. And I was funny, Gail and I were talking about it today, that just natural anxiousness now that I never had. Um, what I would say about mental health versus the addiction, and I have a very good podcast if you can't um, buy another speaker, if you contact me privately, is you've got mental health here and you've got the addiction. If you don't deal with both of them, they will dance with each other and they will tangle like you wouldn't believe. So it is important. I don't want to say, oh, don't go to a psychiatrist, don't get pills. That, that side is a totally different side. The addiction is the addiction, but it shouldn't, you, sh you will get recovery if you work the steps. I promise you, I promise you it happened for me. And trust me, if it happened for me, it'll happen for you. I hope to God, you know, I hope that helps. 
Yes, thank you. Shannon, go ahead, please. Hi, Shannon, uh, bulimic compulsive eater. Um, so I'm recently, you know, pulling my way out of relapse. Um, my sponsor told me, cause you know, in the beginning I was working the steps really hard, trying to go through all the steps and get it done and, you know, race towards step nine. And um, she kind of stopped me cause I was having a hard time uh, staying abstinent. And she was like, how about you just focus on one, two and three. And I'm just wondering, you know, when or how much time of abstinence do you think is necessary to like clear that pathway in order to move on to step four? I don't know if that makes sense, but yeah. Sorry, did you say that you'd, you'd work steps one, two, and three, but you were still in the food? Yes. Yeah, so um, I'm wondering how long, like how much of a stretch of being abstinent out of the food, out of the behaviors, do you think, I guess it might be different for everyone, but is enough time in order to move into the actual action steps, you know, into step four? Because yeah. I don't want to be just sitting on my laurels, but I also want to do it correctly. Yeah, and, and I think um, I think everybody has uh, perhaps a different view on that, and it's very often how we've been sponsored ourselves. Um, so one side kind of got to the end of the doctor's opinion with my sponsor. I had put the food down, um, so I moved on to you know steps two, three, four. Um, if I was working with somebody as a sponsor, you know I've always been taught that we can't take the action steps if we're still getting an effect from the food because we're not going to get an effect from the steps so you know I would certainly be looking at um you know a, a, a good week's worth of being out of the food um that's just my personal view other people will have a different view and I think it depends on the individual and where they're at and, and what kind of behaviors that they're kind of indulging in and we would have that conversation as we were moving through steps one two and three um, but somebody else might have a different view. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of not the oracle on that. I don't know whether Rita's got a, a view. No, I, I would be the same. I, you know, I, you know, the expression, you can't see the wood for the trees. I couldn't see the wood for the food, you know, that kind of way. And while there's cheese, carbohydrate, sugar, whatever it is in my ears, I can't hear anything, nor can I concentrate on anything. And the white noise is ramped up again. So yeah, I'd be the same. I'd give it a week. Um, also, I just wanted to address a question that we got in the chat. A few people are messaging me about the podcast, no problem. Just take my WhatsApp me and I'll just send it across. Somebody asked me in the chat, what's the difference between a slip and a relapse? I heard something brilliant once and I just wanted, for me, for me I just want to explain. Uh, I heard a speaker once say, a slip is an accidental fall, right? Did you accidentally ask the waiter for the menu, accidentally order the dessert and then accidentally eat the chocolate brownie? that's the difference I personally feel you know this but again it's, this ever it's what everybody thinks but you know my disease is calm and baffling and powerful and I just can't give it an inch I just can't because when I do that's when things start to go you know and I don't show up for life and I don't show up for others so I'll leave it at that okay Rita and Gail I don't know if you're able to stay on a little bit at the end we still have a lot of hands but we have to get to closing so if you can stay on please don't lower your hands and Rita and Gail will graciously yeah. 
So I will hand it back over to you for summary and closing thoughts. Okay, thank you so much everybody for your participation and your honest sharing and I've got lots and lots out of this as well and I will be re-listening to this uh, numerous times just to make sure I've captured all your thoughts and ideas because that's been just wonderful sharing experience, strength and hope. So we've just got a couple of things to talk to um, talk through as we come to the end of this workshop. Um, so yeah, I guess relapse is not part of everybody's story, but for some of us it is, and certainly for Rita and myself, it is very much part of our story. And um, you know, I might wish that were different, but actually, you know, what what relapse has given us is a much greater understanding of this disease and the solution and I am really really grateful for that and I know that Rita is as well. Yeah. Just a reminder that recovery and a rekindling of our relationship with a higher power is possible. You know I had to do a lot of work in step two to rethink my concept of a higher power because I just had a complete block around well if I had a higher power I wouldn't have relapsed and my sponsor suggested well, why don't you rethink your concept of a higher power? And that's what I did. And that's the, the absolute beauty of this yeah, program, anyway. that we don't need to follow no. somebody else's conception of a higher you power. You can't say it on an iPad. That's wonderful. It gives us a real sense of freedom. I think it's vital to share experience, strength and hope because shame can absolutely keep us in bondage to the hell of this disease. And I don't actually know if I would have got recovery had it not been for the pandemic and Zoom, because when I was in a face-to-face -face meeting and I was wearing my relapse, I could absolutely not sit still. I was cringing and squirming in my seat and I couldn't hear the message, such was my shame. I felt people were looking at me, I felt people were talking about me. And actually when I went in that first Zoom meeting and people could just see my face, it was just a different experience. So it's so important that we talk about relapse and being back in the hell of the food because shame could have killed me. It absolutely could. And honesty is vital. It tells us on page 65 that nothing counted but thoroughness and honesty. You know, so whatever is going on for us, we need to be honest and share it. I cannot tell you the number of times that I sit down to do my evening review and I am cringing at what I have to share with my sponsor because I'm embarrassed because I've behaved like a five-year-old because I'm jealous of one of my girlfriends or I've been, you know, horrendous with my, with my husband. But that's the level of honesty I have to have because I am only as sick as my secrets. And then we once heard a fellow say that the fear of more eating and more destruction must outweigh the fear of letting the food go it must or it will kill us. You know, it was incredibly scary for me to put the food down. You know, it was my crutch. And I'd had a passionate love affair with food for over 30 years. You know, of course there was gonna be some fear. If I'd had a passionate love affair with an individual, there would be a lot of fear and that relationship ending, but it was killing me. So I had absolutely nothing to lose, but to wholeheartedly, work this program with everything that I had. I'm gonna hand over to Rita. Thanks so much, Gail. So yeah, this part, these quotes are kind of out of the stories at the back of the big book, which for me are really important because they're about identification. They're about realizing 
your disease in other people, almost seeing it in other people, you know. And the first one is from Crossing the River of Denial, page 328. So stop asking why me. It's like a man standing on a bridge in the middle of a river with his pants on fire, wondering why his pants on fire. It doesn't matter. Just jump in. You know, I hear this a lot. Yeah, but, yeah, but, it's the yeah, buts. The yeah, buts will bite you. That's what they'll do. But I'm this, I'm that. I need, you know, it's, you know, yeah. I could give you a million reasons to eat. A million. It wouldn't matter. And then it goes into, um, you know, window of opportunity. Um, this this quote actually breaks my heart. It says, looking back, that may, page 425 in the big book, looking back, that may have been the first healthy decision I ever made with respect to alcohol. One definition of a bottom is the point when the last thing you lost or the next thing you're about to lose is more important to you than the booze. That point is different for everybody and some of us die before we get there. Our disease wants it stead. That's all it wants. That is, that is the end game for the disease. It wants us dead. And you know what? If we're not dead, it'll settle for miserable or just in sheer despair. And that's what I was in relapse. And you know, this is really sad. People do die. You know, people, people end up in hospitals. They, you know, like I was in the wheelchair because of the cancer, but you know, I would have ended up there eventually if I'd kept going anyway. I would have ended up in a wheelchair because of my weight, you know? And I, like I said, we all, we all deserve to live until we die you know the next one again is he lived only to drink page 451 i cannot allow my sobriety to become dependent on these ups and downs of living sobriety must live a life of its own it has to live separate to us it's got sorry it has to be completely enmeshed in our lives our recovery but we cannot allow the ups and downs you know they're part of life Life happens, life happens. You know, we lose partners, we lose children, we lose some jobs, everything, you know, but life happens and we have got to keep God close to manage those ups and downs. And our sobriety has got to be something that we work on on a daily, hourly, minute to minute basis, whatever it takes, no matter what. And then in appendix three, the alcoholic, page 570, the alcoholic over, often overcomes his excessive concentration upon himself, learning to depend upon a higher power and absorb himself in his work with others. He, other alcoholics, he remains sober day by day. The days add up into weeks, the weeks into months, and the months into years. It's a miracle we're sat here. It's a real miracle because I saw not only my relapse, but Gail's, and you know, it was horrific for both of us. For us now to be able to get up, and to do things, you know, I get up and, you know, I go to the gym and I swim and I watch myself almost in, in an out-of-body experience. And Gail shared this about her run too. It's like, is this really us? Is this, is this really us? What happened to the person who just sat on the sofa and, you know, didn't want to leave the house? Nothing fitted, you know? So it's just, it's wonderful, you know? And it, it's an altruistic movement. That's the most important thing to remember about this quote. It is an altruistic movement. We have got to help others. That is our responsibility. It goes back to, it's a foundation stone of our recovery. So that's that. And then if you move on to the next slide, this is something that's really important, particularly it's something I love. So two parts in the big book, everybody talks about the promises. There are tons of promises. These are the ones, the ones we have pulled out are the ones that everybody knows, page 83. 
but there are so many promises in the big book, you know, the immunity to alcohol, various things, you know, you will experience a freedom beyond your wildest dreams, you know, but here, this before, this part of the bedevilments, this is the part really that it's the relapse part or it's the prelapse for some of us. You know, it's when we've had recovery and then we can feel ourselves what I call prelapse, where like Gail says, we're not connecting, we're not doing 10, 11 and 12. So this is, I'm going to read out what the bedevilment looks like and I'm going to give, Gail is going to give you the hope and the promise that follows that. The bedevilments can be found on page 52 of the big book. So we were having trouble with personal relationships. We will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip away. We couldn't control our emotional natures. We will comprehend the word serenity and we will know peace. But we were a prey to misery and depression. But our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. We couldn't make a living. And fear of people and of economic insecurity will leave us. We had a feeling of uselessness. That feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. We were full of fear. We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. We were unhappy. We are going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. We couldn't seem to be of real help to other people. No matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. We will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. And most importantly, it says, and most of all, but most importantly for us, we will suddenly realise that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. And yeah. that transformation happens in 31 pages from page 52 to page 83. And it's one that's available to all of us. And the good thing about the bedevilments, there's a sadness reading them and then there's a happiness reading the promises. So we want to kind of finish. We'll go back into questions after we finish, but we want to say, you know, you need to get right with yourself. You need to get right with others. And most importantly, you need to get right with, with God. God and give a lot of a love. Lot of love. And thank you so much thank for you. listening to us. Thank you so much, everybody. Thanks, thank guys. You. It works if you work it up.